You're listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. This is a chronological Bible study going chapter by chapter, discovering Christ in all of Scripture. This is Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, The Temptation and Fall of Man. Genesis 3 is the saddest chapter in the Bible, mainly because it is the foundation for any and all evil we will read about later on. Whether it is sin in our own hearts, violence in the world, illness and death, or natural disasters, all find their source in the rebellion of our first parents, which we read about here. God provided a paradise for Adam and Eve, with trees laden with fruit for food, but in the middle of the garden there were two unique trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God gives the command regarding the forbidden tree to Adam before the creation of Eve, yet she knew about it even though she misquoted it and added to the restrictions by saying, and you must not touch it. Notice that the tree of life, also another unique tree in the midst of the garden, was not forbidden to Adam and Eve. Ever wonder why they didn't eat from that one instead? We'll never know, but at least we know that in the New Jerusalem we will have access to the tree of life, forbidden to our first parents because of their disobedience. As a gardener, Adam would have been in constant contact with the trees. He would see them and wonder. He had been given freedom to eat of any tree except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God gave the command with the assumption that man could choose. He was morally capable and responsible. He was a free moral agent. This one exclusion was a simple, true test. Would they submit to God's authority over them as creator, or would they rebel? Time passes. We don't know how much time they had a happy marriage and uninterrupted fellowship with God. The factors in her decision were that the fruit was good for food, it seemed edible, was pleasant to the eyes, so she desired it, was desirable to make one wise, which was the most appealing benefit to her. She may have been curious about it for a long time. It may have smelled delicious. Sorry to burst your bubble, but the fruit they ate was not an apple. It is only called fruit. You may have seen artist pictures of red fruit, learned about Adam's apple, supposedly stuck in every man's throat, and heard lyrics like Eve tempted Adam with an apple, and may even have heard it from Sunday school teachers, but it's not true. How do we know? Go to the scriptures. First of all, Adam and Eve could eat of every tree in the garden except one. It wasn't the apple tree. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was one of two unique trees in the garden. It was the only one of its kind, located only here, which was now hidden from us. Further, once they ate of it, were judged by God and banished from Eden forever, its fruit was never eaten again, unlike the apple tree. Also, the fruit is not described for us except to say that it was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise. Also notice the verbs, saw, took, ate. We'll see this many times in scripture in relation to sin. Now many believed Satan tempted Eve while she was alone, thus making her more vulnerable. This was not the case. The conversation recorded in chapter 3 records only two speakers, Eve and the serpent, or Satan. But they were not alone. Adam was standing right there beside her, yet he said nothing. It says, she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. So Eve didn't say, Adam, what do you think we should do? 
nor did Adam stop her or argue with Satan. He heard the whole exchange between Eve and the serpent, but did not intervene. He didn't take a leadership role, whereas Eve usurped his authority by making the decision. Also notice that Eve didn't tempt Adam. Throughout history, people refer to her as a temptress, and by extension all women. Though women can be that, Eve is not portrayed that way. She was tempted, but she did not tempt Adam. She is not recorded as saying anything at all to Adam, one way or another. She merely gave him the fruit, and he ate it. No convincing required. So that's why it's forever referred to as Adam's sin, even though Eve was the one who ate first. Eve was deceived, whereas Adam made a conscious decision to defy God's command. The first question ever asked in the Bible was asked by his enemy, questioning God's word. Satan plants doubt in their minds that God didn't have their best interests at heart, but was keeping something good from them. He emphasizes God's prohibition rather than his provision. He questioned the extent of the command. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? He then calls God a liar and states the opposite of what God said. You will not certainly die, as a truth, and implies that God is hoarding power to himself. Yet God said, But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And Eve toned this down by saying, Or you will die. The concept of death was not something Adam and Adam would have understood. He would not have witnessed death, since there was no death before sin entered the world. By contrast, the theory of evolution is all about death. But Adam would have understood death was not desirable. So why didn't they drop dead the moment they ate the fruit? Adam lived to be 930 years old. Because it wasn't poisoned fruit. But the process of death began that day. Much like a tree branch does not die immediately when cut off a tree. It still looks leafy and green. But since it is cut off from the source of its life, it will inevitably die. So the issue at stake was not whether a certain fruit was good or bad to eat, but whether Adam would let God determine what was good or bad, or if he'd decide himself in defiance of what God had said. As a side point, the Mormons don't see the fall as a bad thing. In fact, they believe the devil's lie and base their whole theology on it. They teach that God was just a flesh-and-bones man who was exalted to godhood. They believe the oldest lie that man can become like God. They say, as man is, God once was, as God is, man may become. Of course, such a concept is nowhere found in scripture, except here. When 1 John 3, 2 says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This does not mean that we will be like him in his deity, but only in our state of sinlessness and with glorified bodies. Verses 8 through 19, Theophany, called to account and judgment. I just want to draw your attention to verse 8, which tells us that Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And this is often misquoted to say that Adam walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day but it's clear that it's God doing the walking. And since we know God is a spirit and has no body, it's believed that this is a theophany or a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus. 
A spirit doesn't make a sound of walking. And this was who Adam and Eve would have interacted with. There are many theophanies in, within scripture and we'll point them out as we go. So death means separation. By their sin, they were separated from God. There was a change in their relationship with him. They would now have bodies that would die physically and their soul would be separated from their body. Diseases were also part of the curse. If not for a way to restore this relationship, they would also be separated from God forever in a place called hell. Immediately after they ate the fruit, the lights went on, or should I say out. The loss of innocence led to a feeling of shame. Their guilt is expressed in the awareness of nakedness. And this is in contrast to before the fall, when they were naked and unashamed. They were also now afraid of God, whereas before they had fellowship with God when he walked among them. Now they saw him as their judge. I was afraid, Adam admits in Genesis 3.10. They realized they were naked and went about trying to make themselves presentable, covering themselves with fig leaves. We often do this too. Many people won't come to God until they feel they've cleaned up their act. They try to cover themselves with the fig leaves of good works, hoping God won't notice that they're spiritually naked. And as the head of the family, Adam must give an account of what has been done. He is questioned first, even though God knew Eve ate first. As I said, it's forever referred to as Adam's sin, not Eve's, although they are equally guilty and equally fallen. He was the representative for all mankind yet to be born. See Romans 5. So there was a change in their relationship with each other, blame and lack of trust. They showed their allegiance to Satan by distorting the truth, accusing one another and accusing God. And their efforts to conceal their sin only exposes it. So imagine Eve's shock when he blames her as if he wasn't responsible for his own actions. I can imagine her standing there staring at him with her mouth hanging open. Notice he doesn't try to say he was deceived. That much at least is true. She handed it to him and he ate it. He also subtly blames God. The woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. He implies that it was God's fault for giving Eve to him in the first place. I've long been intrigued by the idea of God asking a question. When we ask a question, it's to get information. What's the temperature today? What time will you be home? Who's going with you? But when God asks a question, it's never to get information. The reason is obvious. He knows all things. So why does he ask anything? Well, let's take a look at the questions of God in this chapter of Genesis. The first one is, But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And the second, And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the third, Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? So why did he ask this? Didn't he know where Adam was hiding and why? Of course. He asks to see if Adam will admit his wrongdoing, much as a parent does when they catch their child doing something wrong. We see what they've done, like a broken vase or hurting their sibling, and yet we ask, what have you done? That's the idea behind his questions. They are all asked to see if Adam and Eve will confess. I also think there's some sadness and disappointment behind the question, 
like when you see your child do something they shouldn't have done, especially after you've warned them of the consequences if they did it. Didn't I tell you not to bounce on the bed and, or you'd hurt yourself? So from even these few examples, we see that God is asking questions not to obtain information from us, his creatures, but to interact with us, to fix our relationship with him, or to judge us and remind us that we are indeed the creature and he is the creator. So the Supreme Court of the universe is now in session. There is no higher court of appeals. The judge has heard the testimonies, or excuses, and he is ready to pass sentence. There is no question as to whether he can do this. It is his right as creator. For Satan, God doesn't even ask for his side of the story, but just assigns judgment on him. God knows his motives and what he has done. The first part of the sentence is on the serpent itself, which is a symbol of Satan, and the second part is on the devil himself. Um, so humanity is now divided into two camps, the redeemed who love God and the reprobate who love self. And this is seen as soon as the next generation in the hostility of Cain against Abel. But see the grace of God. Even as he is passing judgment, he is giving them the first promise of a redeemer. It came unsought by the guilty pair, but was entirely the initiative of God. And this is called the Proto-Evangelium, or first promise of the gospel. And that's because the solution was not an afterthought, nor a reaction to man's sin, but God's plan all along. We see this in Revelation 13.8, where Jesus is referred to as the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. And in Ephesians, Paul says that believers were chosen before the foundation of the world. And although it hadn't yet happened in time and space, it was planned before time and space. God does not leave them without hope. The woman's seed will gain the victory. As sin entered the world through the agency of a woman, so the Savior of sinners enters the world by way of a woman. Jesus is Mary's son. He had no human father. The reference to her seed is a clue, as biology teaches us that men have seed, women, and egg. Yet this future Redeemer is her seed, which is contrary to nature. So this hints at the virgin birth, or rather the virginal conception. It was a normal birth, but a unique conception. It was faith in this promise that justified and saved the patriarchs and other believers before Jesus came. All believers are saved through him. The Old Testament saints were saved on credit the debt to be paid by Jesus and applied to them retrospectively. Matthew Henry puts it beautifully, how admirably the satisfaction of our Lord Jesus by his death and sufferings answered the sentence passed on our first parents. Did travailing pains come in with sin? We read of the travail of Christ's soul. Did subjection come in with sin? Christ was made under the law. Did the curse come in with sin? Christ was made a curse for us. He died a cursed death. Did thorns come in with sin? He was crowned with thorns for us. Did sweat come in with sin? He sweat for us, as it had been great drops of blood. Did sorrow come in with sin? He was a man of sorrows. His soul was, in his agony, exceedingly sorrowful. Did death come in with sin? 
he became obedient unto death. Thus is the plaster as wide as the wound. Blessed be God for his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So as our first representatives, the punishment was not just on Eve as an individual, but on all women to come. She and we would experience pain in childbirth. Can you imagine how scary it would have been to be the first woman to give birth with no midwife except her husband, no medical care, no mom to tell her what to expect? She has my respect. And her relationship with her husband would change. Just as she usurped his authority when she ate the fruit, she would now be under his authority, although she would kick against it. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And this does not refer to physical desire, because that isn't a curse. The word translated desire is the same as that used in Genesis 4-7 to Cain, uh, and it means to the desire to control, which is why the contrast in the verse is that he will rule over her. It's talking about her desire to take control in the marriage relationship, as she just did by making the decision to take the fruit without consulting her husband. Now he will rule over her, and the battle of the sexes, which began in the garden, has been in effect in every relationship since, with power struggles within marriage. Their marriage relationship became strained. Trust is replaced by mistrust. The curse on the woman becomes part of the man's curse as well, since their relationship is affected. He would try to dominate her, she would try to control him. She now has enforced submission as her punishment. In Christ, these relationships are redeemed, although our role is still to submit to our husband's leadership in the home. And there is a wrong view of submission today. It is seen as inferiority. In the first century, submission to husbands was represented by wearing of head coverings. Now, head coverings don't have the same meaning. But could it perhaps be demonstrated by something different, like taking his name when you marry? That's just a thought. The idea of headship and submission always existed in the eternal nature of God himself. Yet we would not say that Christ is inferior to God the Father, even though they have different roles. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God, says 1 Corinthians 11.3. And likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. That's Titus 2, 3-5. And just as a side note, but I like the phrase, subject to their own husbands, we are not to be submissive to all men just because we are women, but only to our own husbands. And that's enough of a challenge. Likewise, Adam's punishment was not just on him, but on all men to come. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. So now man's relation, natural relationship to the earth and his mandate to subdue it is reversed, and he is frustrated in his work. The earth fights against him too. Um, work would be difficult because God cursed the earth because of Adam. 
He says, Cursed is the ground because of you. So the punishment on the earth is included with Adam's punishment because he is linked to it because of his creation. Adam would work hard his whole life and then die. The process of death includes suffering and illness, dust to dust. He says, for dust you are and to dust you will return. And I think at this point, Adam and Eve are beginning to understand what God meant by death and they see it is not good. Verses 20 to 24, atonement or covering and banishment. So what next? Adam, whose name means red earth, names her Eve, the mother of all living. She was not named before the fall. And this shows his faith in God's promise that the woman would bear children, including the seed who would defeat Satan. So God provides a covering for sin. and They thought they could do it themselves with fig leaves, but God determines the remedy for the problem. He provides animal skins as a covering. Now skins are not merely zipped off. This required the death of an animal. So this was the first picture of both blood sacrifice and substitutionary atonement, one person or thing dying for another. And this would have been their first encounter with death. Paradise Lost. It's in uh, Genesis um, 3.22, like Genesis 1.26, is another reference to a council meeting of the Godhead in which plural pronouns are used. God says, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. By barring them from the tree of life in their sinful state, God graciously protects them from eternal bondage to sin and misery. He also cleanses his temple garden and exiles Adam and Eve from it. It says the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden. And it also says after he drove the man out. So the first part of their death sentence is realized. Separation from God. Um, he also placed cherubim at the entrance so man could never return and eat of the tree of life you can be sure that it will never be found. The flower children of the 1960s sought to get back to the garden or re-enter paradise, which is an impossible feat, as we'll see in the next chapter. They sought to do this through music, drugs, and sex. Um, cherubim are angelic beings that protect, protect God's holiness. They are also seen on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, and on the curtain, barring the way to the presence of God, Exodus 26. So if the entire Bible was analyzed as literature, see the podcast on further thoughts on the book of Job, where I did the same, then this chapter is the inciting incident, which is something that happens to set the events in motion and cause the character to have a crisis. So the presence of sin in the world sets the stage for all that follows and leads to the need for a savior. Scarlet threads. So what scarlet threads or hints of Jesus Christ or an application to the gospel do we find in this chapter? Adam is called the son of God in Luke's uh, genealogy of Jesus. Je uh, Jesus is the son of God. The appeal of the forbidden fruit was threefold. She saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. 
At Jesus' temptation, Satan tempted him three times with food, power, and protection. The Apostle John warns believers to beware of three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The first Adam failed the test even though he was in a garden surrounded by food and drink with the fellowship of Eve and God himself. Jesus is called not just the second man compared to Adam as the first, but the last Adam, because there will not be a third Adam. Both are representatives of an old humanity and a new humanity, and this is referred to as federal headship. The first brought death, the second brings life. Jesus' temptation occurred in the wilderness when he was alone after he had fasted from food and water for forty days, yet he passed the test. When they sinned, they tried to cover their nakedness with a man-made solution, sewing fig leaves together. And this is similar to trying to please God with our own efforts, rather than by faith in his word. The fig leaf coverings were inadequate, so God graciously clothed them with animal skins. This prefigured both blood sacrifice and the death of a substitute. Also, atonement gives the image of covering sin, and even the mercy seat is a covering of the ark, which contained the law which we broke. It is the place where estranged parties are reconciled. Jesus was our substitute, taking our place under the wrath of God, shedding his blood to cover our sins. Part of the woman's curse is she is to be subject to her husband, but she would desire that power. And this submission is to continue in the marriage of believers. And the reason for this is because marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship to the church and because Jesus is subject to the Father, but he is not inferior to him. Earlier, God blessed them, but now he is cursing the earth because of them. And part of Adam's curse was that the earth was cursed with thorns and thistles, interfering with his ability to get food from it and leading to death after a hard life. Notice that Christ wore a crown of thorns on his head bearing the curse that was on the earth as well, so that it could also be redeemed one day. Romans 8.21 says that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. In Galatians 3.13 we see, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, but in paradise uh, it says, no longer will there be any curse, Revelation 22.3. So, even in the midst of judgment, God holds out hope with the first promise of the gospel. The seed of the woman will crush the serpent. Isaiah prophesies about a virgin who will conceive and bear a son. This is considered a messianic psalm and also mentions the light that he will bring to the darkness of Galilee to the Gentiles. When Jesus, the seed of the woman, died on the cross, it was a victory over the works of the devil. And one day Satan, called that ancient serpent, the devil or Satan, will be punished forever. The Garden of Eden came with a prohibition. When they sinned, they were cast out of paradise, partly because God didn't want them to live forever without the hope of redemption, which would happen if they ate of the tree of life. Then, so God cleansed his temple. When Jesus was on earth, he cleansed the temple twice. In paradise there is no need of a temple because the Lord God and the Lamb are its temple. 
the second heavenly council, when God decided to banish Adam and Eve uh, from Eden, hinted at the Trinity with the plural pronouns. Jesus existed before Bethlehem. In Eden, there had previously been fellowship with God and his creatures. Sin severed that relationship and estranged us from God, but restored it through the work of Christ, reconciling us to himself. When Jesus was born, he was called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. John says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Revelation 21.3 says, God will again dwell with his people. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. When paradise is restored, um, and we will have access to the tree of life, forbidden to our first parents. But the only way we'll enter paradise is through Jesus, who is the only way to God. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You've been listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and comment. Continue listening for Genesis chapter 4. May God bless the study of his word.